What I'd like to do now is simply to introduce our speaker for the next session. John Piper is the pastor for Preaching and Vision at Bethlehem Baptist Church, and he's been there since 1980. He grew up in Greenville, South Carolina, and he went to school at Wheaton College and Fuller Seminary and the University of Munich. He's married to Noel. He has four sons and one daughter, and he'll be speaking to us today on the life of Robert Murray McShane. We oftentimes in these biographical, or excuse me, in these speaker introductions, we'll talk about the, the, the books that, that the speaker has authored, and John has, I think, 30 or maybe even over 30 now. But this year, we've, it's been a real joy to just come back to this book. You know, it was 25 years ago, and you heard John's journal entry read to you this morning. It was 25 years ago that Desiring God was published. And I was thinking just backstage a little while ago that uh, how God has used this book and how God has used the ministry of John through this book over and over in my own life and what a debt I I have, as it were, to to you, John, Uh, but how this book has shaped so many of us. And we just can give thanks to God for the writing ministry of John and uh, thankful for this particular book. And this is... Um, just a special year for us as a ministry as we rally back to the fountain, as it were, the original sort of vision of God that got, got it all going so many years ago. So thank you for being a part of that, even in your presence here. And I would love for you to join me now as we welcome John Piper to speak to us for the next hour. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we rivet our attention now for a few minutes on Robert Murray McShane's God and his God's work in his life, I pray that we would be inspired and that all the good things we've been hearing concerning the life of prayer and devotion and Christ-centeredness would take a step further down deep into our hearts, and that we would experience kinds of resolve here, kinds of longings and hopes and aches that would not be a flash in the pan, but would be deeply rooted and so last for the rest of our lives. So come and make more use of this time than could have been had you not been here in great power. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's amazing to me how God has raised up extraordinary young people and then cut them off in their youth and then preserved their impact with a book for decades and centuries to come. For example, Jim Elliott was 28 years old when he was cut off in the jungle of Ecuador, and nobody today would know who he was except for Through Gates of Splendor and The Shadow of the Almighty, written two years after he died by his wife. Or another example, David Brainerd, missionary to the American Indians in the 1740s, cut off at the age 29 in 1747, and 
nobody would have a clue who David Brainerd was, except that two years later, Jonathan Edwards wrote a book about him and included some of his journals in it, so that today the life of David Brainerd is among the three most influential books in the history of modern missions. Another example, Henry Martin, missionary to India and Persia, died in 1812, cut off at the age of 31. Nobody would have known, maybe you don't even know, who Henry Martin was, except that John Sargent, four years later, a good friend, wrote the memoir of Reverend Henry Martin, B.D. And so generations of students, especially British students, have been inspired by this young man's life. I find that to be an amazing pattern. Raise up a man full of the Holy Spirit with an extraordinary power on his life and cut him off at age 30 and then preserve his life in a book. It's an interesting way that God does things. So we're focusing on one of them, namely Robert Murray McShane, not a missionary this time, but a local pastor in Dundee, Scotland, who died in 1843 at the age of 29. And perhaps of all those young saints, the least likely to be remembered because of how unextraordinary his life was. He wasn't crucified like Jesus at age 33. He wasn't speared to death like Jim Elliot. Uh, he wasn't ravaged in the jungles of early America. And um, he didn't die 3,000 miles away from his fiancée in Turkey, like Martin. He just went to school till he was 22, worked as an associate pastor for a year, became a preacher in a church for six years, and he died. And here we are, 168 years later, 1,600 people, ready to be inspired by this man because Andrew Bonar, a very, very precious friend, wrote it down, captured his memoir journals and then added a few sermons and poems and it's never gone out of print. And everything else we know comes from those pretty much. So how did it happen? Well, there's always these two things, right? A powerful life and somebody to capture it. McShane, Elliot, Brainerd, Martin, Jesus. So what was it about this short life, really short, really short ministry, that causes us to go back to him again and again? What, what created the force because it is a force. Nobody keeps reading a, a story of a life, no matter how excellently the biography is written, if there's no force in the life, if there's not something extraordinary that affects you when you, when you read it. So I have uh, tried in all my reading to choose a title 
which I just thought up a few days ago, so it wasn't pre-published, but you saw it on the screen, maybe. I have tried to come up with a title that I think gets at the keys to his life. Uh, the, the title is this, He Kissed the Rose and Felt the Thorn Living and Dying in the Morning of Life. Robert Murray McShane. Now, the first part of that title, He Kissed the Rose and Felt the Thorn, I didn't make up. McShane described his teenage years with these words, only I took his words and turned them on their head, because not long after he described himself this way or was this way, God turned him on his head. So let me give you the words that he wrote, and then you'll see the change that I made in them. When he was a teenager, careless, worldly, unconverted, at the university, went to university when he was 14, um, University of Edinburgh, he said, I kissed the rose, nor thought about the thorn. I kissed the rose, nor thought about the thorn. And I'm turning that upside down because that's what happened to his life. What he meant by that was, I indulged in the amusing and beautiful pleasures of this world, I kissed the rose, and didn't give a thought to sickness and suffering and death. That's the thorn. And I'm saying, now he kissed the rose and felt the thorn and I mean something very different by the rose. Because later, if you do, you know, one of the little parentheses here, one of the great things about Kindle or whatever you may use is that you now can download these old books and search them. This is incredible. You can search rose and you can get the book free. So, and you don't have to own a Kindle. Just do it on your Mac or your PC because you can download Kindle for Mac or whatever. So, close that parenthesis. <laughs> this is how I know this. He often, in his sermons, referred to his precious Rose of Sharon. And Jesus became to him a new kind of rose. Once the rose was classical learning... And now the rose is Jesus, and he kissed the rose in a new sense. And instead of, nor did he give any thought to the thorn, now he lived with the thorn stuck in his lungs from the day he was 18 years old because he had tuberculosis. And he began to realize, I will not be long for this world. And he wasn't. And those two things, the preciousness of Jesus and the shortness of life or the imminency of eternity, I'm arguing, are very close to the root of everything that makes us find him extraordinary. He wrote, Set not your heart on the flowers of this world, for they have all a canker in them, Prize the rose of Sharon more than all, for he changeth not. Live nearer to Christ 
than to the saints, so that when they are taken from you, you may have him to lean on still. So the meaning of my title, He Kissed the Rose and Felt the Thorn, is that there was a double-sided key to his life, namely the preciousness of Christ and the painfulness and shortfulness, shortness of his life. And the point of the subtitle, Living and Dying in the Morning of Life, is simply to underline that second point, that he never made it to noon in the ordinary sense of a life. And more and more he knew that would be the case, and therefore more and more he lived on the edge of eternity. And, and when you walk on the edge of eternity, whether you have a disease or whether God just grants you the grace to be aware of it regularly, there is a flavor about your life that I think is what these last three messages you've been listening to have been talking about, especially Francis' message that as you stand in the pulpit, here's a man who has a foot in heaven already. So that's the double key I'm going to argue for. McShane was born in Edinburgh in May 21, 1813. His parents would have been called moderates in the Scottish Church, Church of Scotland, not evangelical. The moderates were those folks who magnified morality and reason and preached non-exegetical, moralistic, gospel-eviscerated sermons that was killing the church of Scotland. And that's the household in which he grew up, and therefore he grew up moral, but not born again, because born again wasn't part of what was talked about or believed in with any conviction. He called himself in those days devoid, I mean looking back, devoid of God. So he went off to the university at age 14 and he studied classics. The professor of moral theology that came, who came the year after he was there was Thomas Chalmers, who would later become McShane's primary influence theologically and mentor during his divinity school days. He was in those days, from 14 to 18, kissing the rose of classical learning, and he was ignoring the thorn of suffering and flesh, uh, suffering and death. And he did that, he did that ignoring until God forbade him to ignore it in 1831. What happened in 1831, which he described as decisive, at least one of the two decisive things to bring him awake, was the death of his brother David. Uh, he had uh, four, there were four in the family. Uh, his sister Isabella died before he was born at four months old. Uh, he had a sister, Elizabeth, who later became uh, his partner in ministry in that she kept the home for him. He never married, so she kept the manse up. And then he had these two brothers, David and William. And in the summer of... Uh, 1831, the eldest, namely David, became mortally depressed. 
He had not walked with God, and now he was dying. And God broke in on David's life, and suddenly, in June and July, saved him. And then he died. And McShane watched his brother suffer, be saved, be radiant, and full of hope, and then die. And Bonar described David's experience like this, joy from the face of a fully reconciled father above lighted up his dying face. So McShane was looking down on his favorite and loved brother as his face lighted up with forgiveness and justification and eternity and then die. So the thorn pierced his heart and stayed lodged there the rest of his life. The thorn pierced him awake. Every year for the rest of his short life, that would be 12 more years, he remembered and marked the anniversary of David's death, the one-year anniversary. On this morning last year came the first overwhelming blow to my worldliness. How blessed to me, thou, O God, only knowest who hast made it so. Eleven years later, the one just before he died, on the anniversary of David's death. This day, 11 years ago, I lost my loved and loving brother and began to seek a brother who cannot die. His word, began to seek a brother, is important. (laughs) God saves people in different ways. It wasn't until March of 1832, that is, what's that, about eight months later, that McShane was born again. At least that's the way he perceived it. He was reading the book, The Sum of Saving Knowledge. And he said later, this is the work which I think, first of all, wrought a a saving change in me. So the the stunning, stabbing, awakening moment to reality and eternity and fragility and sin was the death of his brother with a radiant face of hope. And then eight months later, reading a book on Reformed doctrine, God saves him decisively. I think that combination is... Remarkable and says a lot about McShane and his heart and mind. What was being converted by God was a poetic lover of the classics. Got to get this now. He's he's it's it's 1831, and he's almost done with his university training, and he loves the classics. He was reading Greek and studying the poets, and he was writing poetry and. And this is what he lived for, and he was stabbed 
brought awake to another reality by the death of his brother. In other words, an emotionally heart-wrenching moment enters into his life, and then eight months later, doctrine lands on him. And so you get this highly charged emotional thing, and then arriving later, this weighty catechetical book called The Sum of, of, of Christian Knowledge or Saving Knowledge, and together they save him. A poet got saved. And it's not surprising then to me that the story, if, if you're looking for a testimony in McShane, tell me about your conversion. You know where you find it? You find it in a poem called Jehovah Sidkenu, which I'll read to you in, in just a moment. But I'm, I'm stressing this because I think there are keys to his effectiveness in the fact that he had gotten a classical learning and that he was writing poetry and that the rose he fell in love with did not cancel out his love affair with poetry. I don't think McShane was a great poet. In fact, I don't think he was a good poet. Um, but what was good and even great was that he saw the world with a poet's eyes. That is, he was moved by what he saw in the world, and he struggled for language to help others be moved by what he saw in the world. That's what, I, that's what poetry is to me. A poet is a person who looks around and they just see the world differently. They see the Bible differently. They see trees differently. They see wives differently. They see fence posts differently. And they're moved. They're moved by a stump on a road of a tree that fell 300 years ago. And just things happen in here when they see the stump. That's, that's a poet. And then they turn to paper and they try to find some language to recapture for others what they felt when they saw the stump. That's what poets do. Or better, the cross. Or heaven. Or hell. Or... So I don't think he was a great poet. I don't even think he was a very good poet. It's, but my, oh my, did he have eyes. And he had words. Poems, try this, are scattered through the memoir for about 20 or 30 pages. And then they're gone. So you think, oh, well, he, he quit all that. He just gave all that up. No, he became a preacher. And then you read his sermons and ask, why is it that almost everybody in this room could do, give you a quote from McShane? Why? And I'll come back to that later. He didn't, he didn't abandon poetry. He simply applied that poet's heart, that seeing eye and that groping for language that just might help somebody be stabbed broad awake to this reality that I feel so deeply. That all went into sermons now. And he didn't write much later. You're struck over and over again in these sermons as to how awakening and pleasing and powerful is the language that he finds to describe ultimate realities. He is endlessly quotable. 
He didn't bury his poetic gift when he was saved. The lover of the classics became the lover of a different rose, the rose of Sharon, and he became grounded in Reformed doctrine. So he's, he's a doctrine-laden, emotionally charged poet. So he wrote this poem called Jehovah Tzidkenu. It it, that phrase is the last phrase. It's a Hebrew transliteration of the last phrase of Jeremiah 23, 6, which says, And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness, Yahweh Tzidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. And then he wrote this poem and told his story that way. So the closest I can help you hearing his conversion story in his own language is to read read this for you. And I, th- I think it is one of his better ones. I don't, I don't want you to hear this and say, well, Piper thinks this is a bad poem. It's just not a great poem. It's the kind you would write. <laughs> and you, you, should, you should try, and, and your wife will appreciate it. Maybe even your church, I don't know. I once was a stranger to grace and to God. I knew not (coughs) my danger and felt not my load. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, Jehovah Tzidkenu was nothing to me. I oft read with pleasure to soothe or engage Isaiah's wild measure and John's simple page. But e'en when they pictured the blood-sprinkled tree, Jehovah Tzidkenu seemed nothing to me. Like tears from the daughters of Zion that roll, I wept when the waters went over his soul, yet thought not that my sins had nailed to the tree, Jehovah Tzidkenu. It was nothing to me. When free grace awoke me by light from on high, then legal fear shook me. I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self could I see. Jehovah Tzidkenu, my Savior, must be. My terrors all vanished before the sweet name. My guilty fears banished. With boldness I came to drink at the fountain, life-giving and free. Jehovah Tzidkenu, is all things to me. Jehovah Tzidkenu, my treasure and boast. Jehovah Tzidkenu, I ne'er can be lost. In thee I shall conquer by flood and by field, my cable, my anchor, my breastplate, my shield. Even treading the valley... Don't pause here. This, This last verse is totally prophetic. Uh, And I noticed in one edition that the word fever was replaced by journey. I thought, who did that? Somebody trying to improve poetry. Never change poetry. (laughs) Okay, sorry about that. That includes hymns. Okay, it's not nice to the author's. Sorry about that. That wasn't in the manuscript. (laughs) Even treading the valley, 
the shadow of death, this watchword shall rally my faltering breath. For while from life's fever, my God sets me free. Jehovah said, Kenu, my death song shall be. And he died of typhus fever. He had tuberculosis. But he got this typhus probably visiting the sick. So there's his story. And what's so remarkable about it, I jotted down about five things that are him here. Number one, it is a poem. McShane was a poet to the end. Number two, its refrain is Hebrew, a language he loved and the people he loved. We give a whole talk on his love affair with Israel. He was a pre-millennial lover and believer that God would bring all physical, ethnic Israel to himself, and then there would be a great awakening, and the end would come. That was his eschatology. Third, it bears the subheading, the watchword of the reformers. I didn't read that to you, but subheading, the watchword of the reformers. And he was a lover of Reformation theology. It celebrates free grace, and he offered it so relentlessly to others in his preaching. And it embraces death with confidence. And for him, this came very soon. And all of that reveals, I believe, profound things about McShane. Now, God knew that McShane would die at age 29. That's his plan. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Nobody else does. He has taken out of Satan's hand the power of death, according to Hebrews 2.14. So God knew that by appointment, this beloved son would die at age 29, which may be why God ordained that his call to the ministry was simultaneous with his call to Christ. So he enrolled in divinity school at the University of Edinburgh November after his brother's death in July. This is before he was born again, according to his own testimony. So November of 1831, he is now enrolled in the Divinity Hall at the University of Edinburgh. And like so many people, certainly me, he met in those days the man who would be the decisive theological experiential influence on his Christian life, namely Thomas Chalmers. I wonder how many of you would could think back over your years of decisive moments where somebody came into your life and they just stamped you forever. That certainly was true for me in my seminary days, and it was true for McShane with Chalmers. Chalmers had been converted in 1811 while being a pastor in a moderate Church of Scotland church. After his conversion, he became the professor of moral philosophy at the University of St. Andrews in 1823, and then he moved down to Edinburgh in 1828, just about the same time that, that McShane is showing up. He was the human force, the main one, in revitalizing the Church of Scotland and overcoming the deadening effects of moderatism. He was warm-hearted, devotional, evangelistic, Calvinist, and he shaped McShane's life and ministry more than anyone else. You may have heard of the sermon 
the expulsive power of a new affection. No, if you have, you can just Google that and find it. That's my first exposure to Thomas Talmers, was running into that in a collection of, of Reformation sermons that I read way back, I can't even remember when, 30, 40 years ago. As soon as I saw it, the expulsive power of a new affection. I knew I had a kindred spirit. That's all I'm about, is trying to awake affections that will exclude all the wrong kind. That's everything I want to do. And so there he was, that kind of uh, Christian hedonist, Scottish style, is the way I would call it. It typified the practical, heartfelt urgency, urgency for, hol- for holiness and urgency for the pastoral ministry that was built into McShane's life in his four years in theological training there under, under Chalmers. He passed along to McShane all this, all this learning, and he put it in the service of holiness and evangelism. You tell two, two heartbeats of, of McShane is, is a passion for holiness and a soul winner to the end. In fact, one of the interesting things I, I don't include here anywhere, but uh, is that there are about three quotes I found of McShane saying he didn't think he was cut out to be a pastor. He was a pastor all his life, and he said, I really believe I'm cut out for itinerant evangelism, itinerant ministry. And he was doing these all over the place and frustrating his, his people that he, he was just burdened for the lost. He got that from, from Chalmers. Chalmers was passionate for holiness and evangelism. He, he warned McShane and the students to watch out for the white devil and the black devil. The black devil meaning the fleshly sins of the world and the white devil meaning the spiritual sins of self-righteousness. And he made the gospel the, of the crucified Christ the key, the central power for holiness. He was... He was deeply burdened also about lostness, not just holiness of the church, but the lostness of the people, and the people in Edinburgh in particularly, the the poor in particular. So he founded a a group called the Visiting Society, and he recruited McShane and the other young students to be a part of this society, and he sent them down into the areas of poverty in the city to both meet needs and proclaim the gospel because of how little gospel witness there was. And that sense of urgency for lost people gripped McShane powerfully. Um, Two and a half years into his divinity studies, he made this first venture down into the city there. He'd been upper middle class, and now here is Chalmers sending him into the city, and this is what he wrote. Such scenes I never before dreamed of. Why am I such a stranger to the poor of my native town? I have passed their doors thousands of times. I have admired the huge black piles of buildings with their lofty chimneys breaking the sun's rays. Why have I never ventured within? How dwelleth the love of God in me? How cordial is the welcome even of the poorest and most loathsome to the voice of Christian sympathy. What embedded masses of human beings are huddled together, unvisited by friend or minister. 
No man careth for our souls is written over every forehead. Awake, my soul. Why should I give the hours and days any longer to the vain world when there is such a world of misery at the very door? Lord, put thine own strength in me. Confirm every good resolution. Forgive my past long life of uselessness and folly. You hear the, the birth of a new kind of passion within him as he ventures out into the lostness of the poor districts of Edinburgh. That would never leave him. And what motivated it all was his love affair of the Rose of Sharon. And it was intensified increasingly by his thorn of suffering. Now, let me pause here and make a side comment. It's, it's not side. I've got it written here, but I thought of it. As, it's kind of a detour. But um, what about time spent in theological education when time is short and people are so lost? So I'm looking out on many of you. Many are, are younger, uh, and you're, you're caring about guys who are coming up through high school and and you're going to be asked about this, or you're dealing with it right now. My guess is hundreds of you are. Should I get more theological training? Or in view of the urgency of the time and maybe my shortness, skip that and go straight to ministry. Consider McShane. Just consider him. Nobody burned with greater zeal that I know of for lost people and the glory of the Rose of Sharon, then Robert Murray McShane. A servant girl once described him as, he's dying to have folk converted. He wrote, we need a ministry that will go to seek the people. We need men with compassion of Christ who will leave home and friends and comforts all behind and go into the haunts of profligacy and the dens of Cowgate and with the love and life of Jesus persuade them to turn and not die. Van Valen, one of the biographers, the unquenchable fire of burning love towards sinners remained with McShane until he was consumed by that same love. And yet, as far as I can tell, it never entered his mind at age 18 when he was converted not to do the full course of theological training at the University of Edinburgh, which he did with its Greek and its Hebrew, which he mastered. And then he served only seven years in the ministry, and he was gone. So the question is, was that a good choice? Could have gotten in four more years of knocking on doors, or was that a good choice? I think so. I, I, I want to be so careful. It's like Francis Chan, Chan saying, well, you know, if you bought that driver yesterday, it's, not, not, it's all right. I'm, not, I'm just not going to buy one. And if you want to buy one, tense there. And I'm saying, if, if you want to skip seminary, 
uh, and, and head straight for the mission field or head straight for, for the pastorate. Um, each man stands or falls before his own master. I, I simply want to say McShane is one witness to the fact that if you go full bore through the best education you can find, you don't have to stop being wild for Jesus. You do not have to stop. And it may be that the Greek and the Hebrew and the more expansive understanding of history and of God and of Scripture will make the seven years God gives you far more fruitful than what 37 could have been had you gone the other way. I, I can't say. I just know he didn't waste his life. He didn't waste any of his life. I, I would not point to any strategic choice he made in terms of education and priorities as a mistake. God blessed what he did. Fruitfulness in this life is not quantifiable in terms of years. Witness McShane and all the other young men who've been cut off and whose influence has lasted. And even if nobody wrote a biography about them, and there have been a million of those, God writes it down. One other thing that he took away from his university and seminary training was friendships. This is kind of another little application along the way. He had some remarkably deep friendships. Andrew Bonar was the closest, and then Alexander Somerville. There was a, the circle went out a little wider, but those two especially were remarkable friends. They used to study together, pray together, sing together, evangelize together. Um, and the reason this has to be mentioned is because we wouldn't know of him without those friends. Without, a, without an Andrew Bonar, we would have never heard of McShane. He was just a pastor for seven years, happened to be very intense, God-centered, wonderfully evangelistic, but probably not any different than several hundred others like that that you've never heard of, maybe thousands of others like that that you've never heard of. A friend captured it and put it down. It seems to me that these friends were something more than usual. They seemed to have intensified everything for each other. It's as though the, the spiritual effect of an experience uh, on the three of them was more than the sum of one plus one plus one. It seems that the effect of experiencing things together was exponential. As though a, a bolt of electricity vertically into one of them was like supercharged as it went out through three of them to others. So here's the way Bonar described this. I sometimes think that we three at that time were like the three disciples you read of, Peter, James, and John, before the day of Pentecost. Christ took these three into the chamber of Jairus' daughter and taught them how to raise the dead. He taught us from the very first to put no stress upon human appliances, but to keep to the gospel word. He took us to the Transfiguration Hill and showed us his person from time to time. He taught us to delight in his person and to behold in a glass the glory of the Lord and be changed into the same image. 
He took us to Gethsemane at communion times and showed us the cup that the Father gave him to drink and which he drank, leaving no dregs behind. For the last five years of McShane's ministry, Bonar ministered at Colas just a few miles away so that he had this very close friend, very near at hand, all the time. And when he died, the church at Dundee did exactly what you would expect. They turned to his closest friend and had him preach the next Sunday, two times from Romans 8. You might ask yourself, who would you want your wife to turn to to preach next Sunday if you drop dead on the way home? Is there anybody that's just so obvious, or two or three that are just so obvious, she wouldn't even have a doubt? Going to go to this friend. (coughs) One of my prayers, here's a little application. One of my prayers in these days of theological reformation and church revitalization in our day, um, that I think thousands of young pastors are experiencing Uh, is that you would find, old or young, this kind of camaraderie. I am jealous for you, really jealous, to find this. Um, It it, it was so rare 30 years ago when I was starting. I came to Bethlehem in (laughs) 1980. So in 1980, as I, as I felt just bursting in me what, what I mean by Christian hedonism, which is kind of happy Reformed theology with a, 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 an unreached people's orientation and an intensity of authentic worship orientation and a pietistic read your Bible and pray a lot orientation and a knock on doors, reach out and try to win people to Jesus orientation and a, a wartime lifestyle orientation and a totally seven-point Calvinism orientation. I look, I look for friends and... <laughs> you know, I mean, this is... You, if you're younger, you just can't realize there weren't any conferences like this. There weren't any. You know, Ligonier maybe it might have come close. Um, and now they're everywhere. T for G, Gospel Coalition... Acts 29, Ligonier, Nine Marks. Oh, my goodness. Just, uh, they're going to do another, Alistair Begg's conference, um, James McDonald's conference. Just, they're everywhere. And there's a deep, deep ethos, theological commonality with a lot of diversity, but just a deep thing. And, and, and I'm just jealous. You don't waste that. Find each other. Link arms, dream a dream. Because I, we, we had this first conference in 1988 because I wanted some more friends. <laughs> I mean, I had a cluster around me at the church. You know, Tom was there and Dave was nearby. And, but, and 80 guys showed up. 80 guys showed up in our chapel over at the church. And good old J.I. Packer, he'd get, he, he loved to get things started. And now, all over the country, you can find each other. 
and uh, don't take it for granted. McShane's power was intensified by the camaraderie theologically, spiritually, ministerially that he enjoyed with Andrew Bonar and Alexander Somerville. Your impact in the world, small as you may think it is, it isn't, will be exponentially increased through these kinds of friendships. Um, here's, here's the way Van Valen described that McShane school, you know, the, the cluster of people that were around his intensity. McShane's school tended to be more spiritual than theological. Their influence was evident not so much in the college halls or study rooms of the theological students. They distinguished themselves not in controversy when it concerned the fight against error, but rather their contribution was more effective in spreading the classical teaching on grace to the general public. Their task was especially focused on evangelization and revivals and didn't exist to give substance to theological structures, but hence their strength lay in their preaching, which distinguished itself from the preaching of others, quote, in the demonstration of the spirit and power. So bands of brothers, comrades in a great cause, are more than the sum of their parts. May God link your arms theologically, spiritually, personally for the sake of that exponential effect. The last day of McShane's divinity lectures was March 29, 1835. He died in 43, remember, so just keep kind of the shortness of the timeline. He's finishing divinity school in 1835. He was just shy of being 22 years old. And that fall, he was called as the assistant minister uh, to the double parish of Larbert and Dunapace, <coughs> November 1835. He served there one year under a John Bonar, and then St. Peter's of Dundee called him August 1836, next year, and there he went, and there he died six years later, six and a half that's the sum of his life. There wasn't much to tell. If, if you look for extraordinary things, there probably were two unusual things. One, he made an eight-month trip to Israel because he, he wanted to find out how it was going with the, the ancient covenant people who were so rebellious, branches cut off from the vine, and how might God be moving in Israel because that would be a sign of the great revival that's coming if God would be moving. So he's gone for eight months, and while he was gone, the second amazing thing happened. Somebody else experiences revival in his own church, and then he comes back, moves into that revived moment where he got prayer meetings of 900 people every night, and it's, it's in a revived mode to the rest of his life. Not the same intensity, but he enjoyed a remarkable season. But as far as, you know, extraordinary, outstanding things besides those two, it was a pretty ordinary life. So what I've tried to do is think through, okay, why then, what is it about this life that makes us think about him? Why, why do we read his sermons and why are people doing biographies about him like this 168 years after his death? And now I'm back at my title, The Rose. 
the rose and the thorn. He, he loved Jesus Christ, cherished the rose, and he was increasingly aware that he had a thorn in his lungs that was probably going to take him out early. I think that these two things, the shortness of his life, the presence of eternity, the pain that he was suffering increasingly with the, the cough that he had, and his love for Christ that was so intense, uh, came to us through his words. My guess is in this room, of those of you who could quote something from him, before this talk would probably be hard put to recall any event from his life. Just his words. And so I think the key to his being useful today is what he said, not what he did. Except insofar as a life of intensity and authenticity has to be there under the words, otherwise they're empty. But if you just have a life of intensity and authenticity and you, you don't have anything remembered about what you said, nobody's going to know anything about your life. And so what's mediated to us today is through his words. So I want to move this thing toward an end by listening to him on these two big issues of holiness and communion with the rose, holiness of life, these things that were so important to him. I want his words to carry the day from here on out, since the events are not that unusual. Um, I'm not going to focus on his preaching, but in passing, I want us to note that what gave his preaching its power, and it did have power, is these two things, a passion for holiness and a passion for Jesus in communion with Christ through the word and prayer. Isabella Dickinson was going to marry Andrew Bonar. She heard him preach before she was converted, and this is what she said. There was something singularly attractive about Mr. McShane's holiness. It was not his matter nor his manner either that struck me. It was just the living epistle of Christ, a picture so lovely, I felt I would have given all the world <clears throat> to be as he was, but knew all the time I was dead in sins. So the man himself, for her anyway, was the sermon. I think that's what Francis Chan was probably saying. It's what God made of him in private that made him so powerful in, in public. <clears throat> People sensed that. Like Moses coming down from the mountain and his face still shone. Nobody, nobody saw what happened on the mountain. They just saw this man's been on the mountain with with. God. That's evidently the effect it had on Isabella when she looked at him. The man himself was the sermon. God made him something remarkable in private. One who heard him preach said, what a joy it is to come under the quickening and refreshing influence of a living creature 
a true man of God whose face, like the face of Moses, shines as if fresh from the holy mount. I think the reason he could commend Christ and the gospel with that kind of power is because the things of Christ were becoming increasingly precious to him. The rose was smelling sweeter all the time and looking more crimson, beautiful, as he moved towards his final thorn piercing. He wrote to his mother, Forgiveness of sins and acceptance with God become every day, in my view, more unspeakably precious. Christ was his life. Christ filled his preaching. Here's what he said. It is strange how sweet and precious it is to preach directly about Christ compared with all other subjects of preaching. He was speaking about communion with Christ when he said to his people, unfathomable oceans of grace are in Christ for you. Dive and dive again, and you will never come to the bottom of these depths. So the key to his power in preaching, it seems to me, was his personal holiness. She just saw a man who was radiant from the mountain and his communion with Christ where he was falling deeper and deeper in love with the Jesus who died for him. God had given McShane the gospel key to holiness through the teaching of Thomas Chalmers. Chalmers was very concerned about excessive introspection in the pursuit of holiness. He knew that a believer cannot make progress in holiness without basing it on the assurance of salvation. He believed in that order. You can't make consistent progress in fighting sin and pursuing holiness if it's not based on the assurance of your salvation. And yet, Chalmers knew, McShane knew, you know, that the effort to look into the sinful heart for some evidences of grace and the attainment of assurance backfires regularly. Chalmers said, glimpses into the dark room of the heart alone give no good prospect. So here's what he wrote. And I read this because McShane picks it up almost verbatim. We should take help from the windows, open the shutters, admit the sun. So if you wish to look well inwardly, look well out. This is the way to quicken it. Throw widely open the portals of faith, and in this every light will be admitted into the chambers of experience. The true way to facilitate self-examination is to look believingly outwardly. Now, those are notes taken down by McShane in his classroom, and he underlined the last phrase. The true way to facilitate self-examination is to look believingly outwardly. So, later, McShane would give his own counsel to his people. Learn, lean, lean, learn much. There is an R in there. Learn much 
of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settle on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. That was McShane's basic strategy in the fight for holiness. And he knew that the battle would have to be waged to the end. When a soul comes to Christ, he said, it is not made perfectly holy all at once. The path of the just is the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. He was often distressed and wrote it down about his own lack of holiness. Oh, let's not lift these heroes up unrealistically high. He was intensely aware of his regular shortfall of his own standards and goals and bemoaned it repeatedly. Yet his strategies were consistent. I will look to Christ ten times, being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next, 2 Corinthians 3.18. So, when he spoke his perhaps most famous words, which are, the greatest need of my people is my own holiness, he meant not simply my people need an upright, a morally upright pastor. Pastor doesn't sleep with a secretary. He meant also a pastor walking in constant communion with the living Christ and being changed from one degree of glory to the next into his likeness. So that brings me finally to how he pursued that constant communion. Now we're moving toward the focus on prayer and the Word. He has much to say about the disciplines of meditating on God's Word and praying, but we need to realize from the outset that all of these disciplines were designed to cultivate not occasional but constant communion with Christ. This is really important for you guys to get. Get it already, I'm sure, but let me just remind you. He believed that regular, disciplined times of Bible reading and prayer were essential, not as ends in themselves, but as tuning the heart to be in moment-by-moment communion through the day. So to play those off against each other, he would not have understood to say, oh, I don't care about that legalistic stuff called Bible reading in the morning. I walk with Jesus and talk with Jesus all day long. I think he would say, I doubt it. I doubt it. At least he couldn't, and I can't. Here's the way you put it. I don't think of my devotions as laying up a stock of grace for the rest of the day. For manna will corrupt if laid by. But rather, 
with the view of giving the eye the habit of looking upward all the day and drawing down gleams from the reconciled countenance. Giving the eye the habit of looking upward is why he spent time looking upward so focused in the morning. In other words, the scheduled disciplines aimed at fixing habits of life in constant communion with Christ. He had formed the habit of rising early even before he was a believer. He wanted to be a great something. And he did it to the end of his life for Scripture and prayer. He loved to meet Jesus early. Quote, rose early to seek God and found him whom my soul loveth. Who would not rise early to meet such company? He wrote to a student, Never see the face of man till you have seen his face who is our life, our all. This just comes to my mind. Pause. Lord, help me to remember where I was. There it is right there. I'm 65. I have a prayer study. I have study and I have a little prayer nook in my study. And I think back over the years of raising four teenage boys, my 40s, 50s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, and, and I remember very consistently getting up before the family most of those days. My wife is here to check me out on this. Everybody's asleep. The study is cold. We have the furnace scheduled to come on later to save money. So it gets down in the 50s at night and comes up to 67 in the daytime. So it's cold. I take a blanket like John Welsh. No way would I get up in the middle of the night to pray for my people. But <laughs> my, my wife would come in and she would not just say, John, you need your sleep. She'd say, get up. This is ridiculous. This, you, you will be a real crab tomorrow if you don't get some sleep. Something like that. But she let me get up earlier than the family. And the whole point was this. These boys are all crabby at the breakfast table. And so am I if I don't, what you're trying to tell us, if I don't bring them Jesus. I've got to go up on the mountain for a little while, put my blanket on me, stay, stay warm, and just say, God, help me. I could have devotion with these guys. They never seem to want to have devotion. And, and I need your help, please, God. And the reason I paused here to say this is because I think over the years there have been seasons where I've just gotten lackadaisical about this. Don't, don't, you know, don't come to a pastor's conference in 1992, hear me tell you that testimony, and think that in 2011 it would still be happening. That's what Francis is trying to tell us. Not necessarily. So this conference will be good for me. The, the, discovering that little counsel, never see the face of a man or a wife, maybe, child, teenager, till you have seen the face who is our life and our all. In another place he said, I cannot begin my work, for I have not seen the face of God. You can call that legalism if you want. I don't call it that. I call it desperation. When he spoke of seeing God, 
the face of God. He had in mind mainly seeing God in the Word, the Bible. He wrote to Horatius Bonar, the brother of Andrew, I love the Word of God and find it the sweetest nourishment to my soul. Now, we all know that McShane developed a Bible reading plan, and it's all over the web. You can find it, and I'm using it this year. First time in my life I'm using it, but I wanted to try it since I'm talking about him. And uh, it gets you through the whole Bible in one year, the New Testament twice, and Psalms twice. So it's a little heavier dose than I usually do with my Through the Bible plan. But what many of us don't know is that he developed another plan, which he didn't use all the time, just once we know, where he read the whole Bible in a month, which must have been constant retreat, I suppose, since I don't know how fast he could read, but it would take me all day, every day to do that, which all goes to show how incredibly important the Word was for him. Um, He had learned through experience, living with Christ, that you can read your Bible and not meet Jesus. And so he made very clear what he was about in reading his Bible. He said, you may read your Bible and pray over it till you die. You may wait on the preached word every Sabbath, but if you are not brought to cleave to him, to look to him, to believe in him, to cry out with inward adoration, my Lord and my God, how great is your goodness, how great is your beauty, then the outward observance of the ordinances is all in vain to you. So the key to his holiness, the key to his preaching was not merely the stated times of meditation on the Word, but his pressing through the Word to the living Christ and cleaving to him and enjoying his fellowship. The written Word became the window through which he gazed at the glories of Christ, the beauties of the rose that he loved so much. This was the key to his constant communion with Jesus. And that just brings us finally to prayer. Communion with Christ goes both ways. I think the way McShane experienced it, the way I experienced it, is that this is where God talks and this is where I talk. I don't hear God other ways than through this, except in the most general way of nature. The heavens are telling the glory of God, which kind of functions as a booster for this. Like, take this important because he made this, this universe. He's big. But that's not a very helpful message to get saved by or to be guided by. This is the message that makes all the difference. So he's talking to me here, and I'm talking to him here. I think that's pretty much the way it was for McShane. Here's what, what he said. We are often for preaching to awaken others. But we should be more upon praying for it. Prayer is more powerful than preaching. It is prayer that gives preaching all its power. Why, the very hands of Moses would have fallen down had they not been 
held up by his faithful people. Come then, ye wrestlers with God, ye that climb Jacob's ladder, ye that wrestle Jacob's wrestling, strive you with God that he may fulfill his word. He probably had himself in mind when he wrote this. I, I think I probably included this because it, it hits home. Since the intellectual part of the discourse, he's talking about preaching, since the intellectual part of the discourse is not that which is most likely to be an arrow in the conscience, those pastors who are intellectual men must bestow tenfold more prayerfulness on their work if they would have either their own or the people's souls affected under their word. If we are ever to preach with compassion for the perishing, we must ourselves be moved by those same views of sin and righteousness which move the human soul of Jesus. So going to school and refining this instrument is good. Thinking that the articulation of right doctrine or good sentences, even poetic sentences, will pierce the dead heart and raise the dead is folly. Therefore, he said, let those of you who are bent towards trying to articulate things with the greatest intellectual reliability devote tenfold more time to prayer. Prayer was so crucial to his power in preaching that he was jealous to discern quickly any hindrance to prayer. One of the measures, and I commend this to you, one of the measures that McShane used to discern it, to discern if he was too much in love with the world, was by noticing the effect it had on his prayer and Bible reading. And before I read the quote, let me just say maybe um, this would be one of the main things to think about here. Um, this is an iPhone, and so you can do anything with this. And then you've got the iPad, which is even cooler, right? And then you've got your computer, which has access to 10 million interesting things at any moment. So this is the new challenge. I don't think it's qualitatively different. It's just entertainment and prevalent and video different and therefore seems to be worse. That is, the, the temptation to be distracted is harder probably to resist today than ever. Maybe wrong about that, but it's hard. So here's what he said. Brethren, if you are ever so much taken up with any enjoyment that it takes away your love for prayer or for your Bible, then you are abusing this world. Oh, sit loose to this world's joy. The time is short. I stood by the side of a dying man last week. It was a week before when Bob passed away at age 50. And then I went 
two hours after he had died and stood by him again. I just thought, he didn't care about this anymore. He really did not care at all how cool this is in those last days. The fog had blown totally away. His priorities were totally different. And preach to yourself, reason with yourself about these things. The fascination we have with the newness of these things and what there is to find out there can be so undoing to our affections for Christ and our devotion to prayer and His Word. A couple more pages and we're done. He was, as he came to death, he was writing a little document called Reformation in Secret Prayer. And in it he says this, and uh, this is the most practical I'll give you, because it's the most practical I could find in him. He said, I ought to pray before seeing anyone in the morning. Often when I sleep long or meet with others early and then have family prayer, when he says family, he never married. I'd love to talk about that sometime, but another time. Um, Family met his sister and some household help. Uh, When we meet with people early or sleep long, then we have family prayer and breakfast and forenoon callers. Often it is 11 or 12 o'clock before I begin secret prayer. This is a wretched system. Family prayer loses much of its power and sweetness. And I can do no good for those who come to seek me. The conscience feels guilty, the soul unfed, the lamp not trimmed. Then when secret prayer comes, the soul is out of tune. Now that's his experience. And I dare say for many of us that rings true. It is far better, he goes on, to begin with God to see his face first, to get my soul near him before it is near another. When I wake, I am still with with you. If I have slept too long, this is really practical and really realistic. Listen to this sentence. If I have slept too long or am going on an early journey or my time is in any way shortened, it is best to dress hurriedly and have a few minutes alone with God than to give it up for lost. But in general, he says, it is best to have at least one hour alone with God before engaging in anything else. I ought to spend the best hours of the day in communion with God It is my noblest and most fruitful employment, and it is not to be thrust into any corner. The morning hours from 6 to 8 are the most uninterrupted and should be thus employed, if I can prevent drowsiness. Thank you very much for that. I'll give you a little antidote. Walk. Okay? If you sit in your chair or you kneel and you're falling asleep within two minutes, get up. And if you don't have much room, just do like this. <laughs> and read your Bible and pray. You can do that. You really can. 
Don't say sleeplessness will keep you from your Bible. It doesn't have to. There are strategies if you want it badly enough. It is my noblest and most fruitful employment, and it is not to be thrust into any corner. The morning hours from 6 to 8 are the most uninterrupted and should be thus employed if I can prevent drowsiness. A little time after breakfast might be given to intercession. After tea is my best hour, and that should be solemnly dedicated to God if possible. And when I awake in the night, I ought to rise and pray as David and as John Welch did. End of quote. So by means of the word and prayer, the Rose of Sharon became increasingly beautiful to Machane. And all the while, these acts of devotion were being intensified by the thorn of his increasing suffering and shortness of life. Um, The week he finished his university studies, he wrote, Life itself is vanishing fast. Make haste for eternity. He was 21 when he wrote that. It wasn't long before the evidences of tuberculosis were unmistakable. He wrote to his mother, and I have to almost smile at this painful sentence because it's the way a poet writes about tuberculosis. 1838. My cough is turned into a loose kind of grumble like the falling down of a shower of stones in a quarry. That's beautiful and horrible. You can hear it. He's dying. And he turns it into poetry. 1839, my sickly frame makes me feel every day that my time may be very short. 1843, with a few months to go, I do not expect to live long. He's talking to his church in a sermon. I expect a sudden call someday, perhaps soon, and therefore I speak very plainly. All of his suffering and expectation of death produced a focused simplicity, an intensity that gave increased power to everything else that McShane did. He saw it was the merciful hand of God. The veil of eternity was being lifted. Here's where he put it. I always feel, this is 1839, I always feel it is a blessed thing when the Savior takes me aside from the crowd. As he took the blind out of the town, removes the veil, clears away obscuring mists, and by his word and spirit leads me to deeper peace and a holier walk. In other words, he believed all of his suffering and the shortness of his life was for his holiness and a gift from God. I have been too anxious to do great things. The lust for praise has ever been my besetting sin. And what more befitting school could be found for me than that suffering alone away from the eyes and ears of man. 
So, brothers, if we will not pray in the strength that God has given us, he will find another way to set you praying. He wrote, Paul never prayed more earnestly than when he had the thorn in his flesh. The thorn in the flesh makes us pant after God. So I conclude that in living and dying in the morning of life, McShane kissed the rose with increasing delight and felt the thorn. His supreme joy was to know Christ. He lived in fellowship with Jesus through word and prayer, and the thorn of suffering intensified and purified that fellowship so that here we are, all of us, 168 years later, being inspired by that life. Let's pray. So, Father, there are thorns lodged in every man's heart here. And I pray that the effect of the thorns of our lives would be to make the rose sweeter, more beautiful, more precious, and that our sense of having one foot in eternity and one foot on the earth would intensify and purify our relationship with, our affection for the beauty of the Rose of Sharon. And may this abiding communion of sweet relationship with Jesus yield holiness of life and passion for evangelism, a love for our church, a readiness to live for missions and for our people. And so may your name be honored. I thank you for the life of this young man and for his friend, Andrew Bonar. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. We'll see you back tonight.